0: In episode 540 with Vanessa Van Edwards, we are diving deep on how to have better relationships with your partner, with your friends, in business, which is ultimately going to enrich your life in so many ways. This is such a game-changing episode. The Melissa Ambrosini Show. Welcome to The Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, Comparisonitis and Time Magic. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating on cues, body language, and these sorts of things. And there is no one better than Vanessa Van Edwards to do this. I walked away from this conversation with so many tips that I have instantly implemented into my life and it has deepened all of my relationships. So I am so excited for you guys to hear this conversation and to take on board what she speaks about and deepen all of your relationships too in your personal life and your business. You will understand what I'm talking about once we dive in, but you are going to want to get your pen and paper out. This one is a note taker. And for those of you that have never heard of Vanessa Van Edwards, she is a best-selling author and a renowned behavioral researcher on professional communication and leadership. Now, over 50 million people have seen her YouTube channel, and in her viral TED Talk, which I will link to in the show notes, you guys have to go and watch that. Now, her work has been featured in national and international media, including Inc., Entrepreneur Magazine, CNN, CBS, and many more. Her book Captivate has been translated into over 17 languages, and her latest book, Cues, Master the Secret Language of Charismatic Communication, was an instant bestseller. And you will know why it was an instant bestseller after listening to this episode. Now, for everything that we mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes, and that's at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 540. Now, get out your pen and paper and let's dive in. Vanessa, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. But before we dive in, can you tell us what you had
1: for breakfast this morning? Breakfast this morning was with my baby. I have a 10-month-old baby we shared, and we shared some yogurt and granola, soft granola. Is this your first baby? Second baby. Oh my gosh. How old is your other? Five.
0: Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Mommy land. (laughs) So precious. So precious. Well, you have an incredibly inspiring journey and story, and a lot of your work has been around behavioral research, and you're also an author, which I am too, which is very exciting. So can you share with us what initially drew you into the world of professional communication and leadership?
1: Yes. So I'm a recovering awkward person, and if anyone's listening and they're like, yes, I am plagued by awkwardness. I feel you. I so feel you. So because of this, I, people skills don't come naturally to me. And so I always felt like I was misreading cues or I'm plagued by social overthinking, you know, where you leave an interaction and you rethink everything that you said a million times and you are sure everyone's mad at you. That's me. <laughs> that, that was me. And so I got into this work because I started to wonder, can charisma be learned? And then as I began to do research, a lot of the research that was out there to help communicate and conversation was written by extroverts. And I wondered, is there a way to interact with people where you don't have to just pretend to be extroverted? Because I am not an extrovert. I'm an ambivert. I'm somewhere in between. And so my work really started with, is there a way to be charismatic if you aren't naturally charismatic? And can you do it if you're not a natural extrovert?
0: Okay. So
1: what did you discover? Was the answer yes and yes? Yes and yes. Thank goodness. Actually, what's amazing is The most charismatic people, most of them, if you talk to them, if you do research on them, they have the honed and developed their charisma over time, and they have created a sort of unique charisma flavor. And this is kind of where I got excited about this research is not only, yes, can we learn charisma? But you don't have to be extroverted. There are extroverts that are very naturally charismatic, right? Like extroversion is, or being the life of the party, being the funniest person in the room, being an excellent storyteller. That is one flavor of charisma. But the second yes was, wait a minute, there are multiple flavors of charisma. There's also the quiet, contemplative, question-asking introvert. There's also the empathetic, compassionate healer, caretaker. Those are all brands of charisma. And I thought, what if I could develop a curriculum to help people figure out what their flavor is? And that's where we are today.
0: Mm, I love it. I want to dive into that. But your latest book, Cues, Master the Secret Language of Charisma Communication. Talk to us about cues. What are cues?
1: Okay, so this came out of my inability to read people and faces. I have an intuition, like I'll sometimes feel like did I just say sent the wrong thing? Did I say the right thing? But I really have trouble reading people. And so I wondered, is there a glossary or an encyclopedia or a dictionary of all these cues? Well, there isn't one. And I thought, well, I'm going to make one. Like, why not? Let me just make one. So I had this notebook originally. This is starting in 2007, where I was starting to kind of catalog all these little cues that I would see, everything from an eyebrow raise to a lip purse to you know direction of toes. And I wondered, where, did this mean anything? I started to dive into the research. There's actually a lot of amazing academic research that no one reads about all these cues. So cues, the book, is 17 years in the making of all this research. And I've narrowed it down to 97 cues. There are 97 cues that humans send to each other. And just to break down cues, cues are the subtle social signals we send to each other. And we send thousands every day. We're doing it not only in video and in person, but on the phone, in email, on Slack. We send hundreds of cues in our profile pictures, in our LinkedIn profile, and they can actually be categorized and managed if you know what they are saying.
0: Okay. And so there's obviously like positive cues and then there's not so positive cues.
1: Actually, you know, I I break it down even further. So yes, there's positive cues and negative cues, but I would even be more specific. So research from Princeton University, this was groundbreaking research. It changed my life. It changed the way I think about people. And hopefully if you're listening, it will change yours. Which is, they studied highly charismatic people and they found that the difference, what makes highly charismatic people charismatic, is not that they're more attractive or smarter or funnier. It's actually that they have the perfect blend of two traits warmth and competence. That there are people who are high in warmth, but they don't show enough competence. There are people who are high in competence, so show enough warmth. And so, specifically, the highly charismatic people are showing trust, likability, warmth, friendliness at the same time as they're showing capability, efficiency, and power. So I decided, you know what, that's actually a much more helpful framework when thinking about these cues. What are the warmth cues and the competence cues? So what I think of it as, there are warmth cues, cues that signal likability, friendliness, trust. There are competence cues that send reliability, efficiency, capability, power. There are cues that are so good they're both, they're the perfect blend of both, and the last one is the danger zone. The danger zone are cues that take away from your warmth and competence, that when you do them, they immediately make people lose faith in your warmth and competence. And so that's actually how I, I think about all the cues. And every person gets to create their own kind of charisma cake, right? Like we can't use the same cues or we look like robots. So kind of the, the fun, the art on top of the science is which cues do you want to pull from? Like, if you want to show up as warm and competent, like, can you add, you know, a couple body language cues, a couple vocal cues, a couple competence cues, and like, how do you make this beautiful cake that is you, that is your flavor of charisma, to go with the metaphor of flavors?
0: <laughs> I love this so much. I love the cake analogy too, and I can see how beneficial this would be for going for a job interview or. Doing a speaking gig, like when I did my TED Talk, all of these things, I can see how
1: important this information is. Okay, so that, thank you for bringing that up because TED Talks was actually a critical component of uncovering this framework. So I, I love TED Talks. And in 2013, I was watching TED Talks. I was on the TED.com website. And I, every lunch, I watched TED Talk. And I searched in the bar, leadership, in the little search bar. And two different talks popped up. One was by Simon Sinek, which is a very famous TED talk. It has millions and millions and millions and millions of views. And it was, you know, called like Leadership Matters or something about leadership. And the second talk I noticed was the same length, came out the same year, same month, the same year, very similar title, but it had less than 40,000 views. And I wondered, I watched both talks. Both were excellent. Excellent. Very helpful. And both Simon Sinek and Field Wicker-Murin, the person who was in the second talk, were relatively unknown experts in leadership at the time. Why did one talk go viral and the other one didn't? So my team and I set out to study thousands of hours of TED Talks. So my amazing research team, we looked at every single TED Talk from 2010, and we counted and logged Every gesture, every cue we could find. We looked at gender. We looked at color of clothing. We looked at smiling. We literally clocked the second smiling. We looked at gestures. We looked at eye contact. We looked at movement on stage. The biggest indicator actually happened in the first few seconds. And it was typically that we knew a TED Talk would go viral or get more views because we were looking at based on view count, specifically based on a warmth cue and a competence cue. And it was this. The best TED Talks all start the same way which is they come on stage, they stand that little red dot, and they do something like this. The sound, the sound I'm going to use is a TED Talk voice and gestures, which I'll do along with it, and I'll explain them if you're listening afterwards. Today, I want to talk to you about a big idea. We're going to talk about three different things that are going to change your life. So I just use a TED Talk voice, right? Like that That's what the best TED Talkers use. And what I was doing is, along with my voice, I was Explaining my words. I held a big, almost like beach ball when I said big idea. I held up three fingers when I said three. That is both warm and competent. A warmth cue is showing our palms. From an evolutionary standpoint, we love to see someone's palm because it shows they're not hiding anything. They're greeting us. This is why when we pop on stage, the advice I give to speakers is always wave at the audience. Morning. So happy to be here. It's because from an evolutionary standpoint, when we see someone's palms, our brain goes, ah. They're not concealing a weapon. They're not going to hide anything from us. It's like a very weird subconscious thing. And so we like to see a palm. That's a warmth gesture. And the very next thing we're looking for is competence. And we know that highly competent speakers know their content so well, they can speak to us on two tracks. They can speak to us with their words, and they can speak to us with their gestures. And so the next thing we're looking at is we're looking at, are you able to say three and hold up the number three? We're more likely to remember all three of your ideas if we see three. When I say a big idea and I'm holding a beach ball, you know it's big. But if I were to say I have a big idea and act like I'm holding a, a penny or a pen, you'd be like, oh, that idea doesn't look very big at all. And so in those TED Talks, we can see, we can break down the actual cues being used. And so for my stage presenters, if you're on stage, or you're pitching in front of a, a room where you're selling an idea, those micro cues before you even get into your pitch are going to set you up for warmth and competence right off the bat.
0: Mm, I love this so much, and I wish I had have spoken to you before I did my TED Talk. Anyway, what is the difference between competence and confidence?
1: Ah, uh, yes. Okay, such a good question. So I don't talk a lot about confidence. I actually, it's funny, my, my first book is called Captivate. My second book is called Cues. And I very much consider doing a book on confidence, right? It would match my C framework. But I don't want to. Because confidence is a fleeting emotion, right? Like we can wake up in the morning and feel confident and then have imposter syndrome and it goes away. We can have someone who makes us feel confident all of a sudden and then it goes away. Warmth and competence are not fleeting states. If you are a genuinely warm person, if you are trustworthy in your being, you have an innate sense of you want to be good with the world, you want to like the world, you want the world to trust you that's a state I want everyone to be in all the time. That warmth should never go away. Competence is the same way. If you know your stuff, you know your worth, you know your skills, and you are highly reliable. Warmth is, can I trust you? Competence is, can I rely on you? Hyper-reliable people who are who they say they are, who can do what they say they can do, who show up when they say they're going to show up, that is a state. And so my goal is, for warmth and competence, specifically in competence, is competence is knowing that who you are is hyper capable. You deliver on your, on your promises. You, when you commit, you have a high commit complete ratio. Confidence, I love it, but it comes and goes and that's okay, right? We cannot be in a permanent state of confidence or we would be narcissists, right? So I think that competence is what I strive for. And when I talk to my students about this and they say, how can I be more competent? How can I be more of a leader? I say, Horace, uh, your commit complete ratio. Think of all the projects and all the things you've committed to in the last year. Everything from lunches to meetings to projects. How many of them have you completed? Your commit complete ratio for a highly competent person is high, it's above 90%. And that means you know what your capabilities are and you're able to complete them. People who have low commit complete ratios don't know their weaknesses leaders know what their weaknesses are and they don't commit to the things they can't do. And also it means that when people say that they, they, they see you as someone who is hyper-reliable. So I, that's, I think, the difference between competence and confidence. And it's one that I, I think that it's good to let confidence come in ebbs and flows, but your competence, you want to have that always high.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What are some subtle cues that so many people miss that you wish everyone
1: knew? Oh, all of them? Okay, but I'll pick my favorite. I'll pick my favorites. 97 of them. <laughs> All 97 of them. And by the way, like my, I turned the book in to my editor and she was like, Vanessa, this is 100 pages too long. And I was like, but they're so important. She was like, you, we can't, like we we can't have, as many people can't remember that many. So actually I had to like call and, and even 97 was hard, but I'm gonna pick my favorites for you. Okay, so one that I would say I wish everyone knew was actually, it's a red flag cue. It's a danger zone cue. It's a cue that takes away from our warmth and competence. And it is the contempt microexpression. So, Dr. Paul Ekman is a researcher of facial expressions. And I've always been fascinated by facial expressions because there are learned facial expressions, but actually there are seven that research has discovered are universal. So these are universal facial expressions that across genders and cultures and races, we make these faces when we feel these emotions. Contempt is the most powerful one, and it's an expression of scorn or hatred or disdain. And it's very simple, it's a one-sided mouth raise like a smirk. So if you just smirk, give an asymmetrical smile, we don't like asymmetry in our face. So when we have that, it is an indication of disrespect, of better than, of scrutiny, of judgment. And what Dr. Ekman found is that we show this when we're feeling better than someone else. It's critical in negotiations, in pitches, in business meetings, noticing this on friends, and especially on partners. So in a different experiment with a different researcher, these researchers are not connected. Dr. John Gottman, he's a marriage and family counselor out of Seattle, he did a marriage experiment. He brought couples into his lab and he wanted to know what was the predictors of a successful marriage. So he tested them on everything he could think of. He gave them, he gave them in-depth history interviews. He looked at their school transcripts. He interviewed their kids. He even put them in an Airbnb situation, a bed and breakfast situation. He filmed them looking at their interactions between each other. At the end of this experiment, he decided he needed to follow them for 30 years. So he followed these couples for 30 years. At the end of the 30 years, there were some couples that had gotten divorced and some couples that stayed together. He found there was one predictor of which couples would get divorced. And he can predict with 92% accuracy if you will divorce your partner within 30 years, if you show the contempt microexpression when you talk to your partner that in the initial intake interviews with these couples if one member of the couple showed that smirk towards the other that better than judging disrespect with 92% accuracy that couple will get divorced in 30 years it's insane i mean that that is insane so i share this because contempt is the only emotion that doesn't go away We talked about fleeting emotions. Anger, happiness, surprise, fear. Those come in bursts and then go away. Not contempt. Contempt is a seed of disrespect. And if it's not addressed, it grows and it festers and it festers. So the magic, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be that everyone could spot this emotion. It's very easy to see it. Once you see it, you'll never unsee it. One, make sure your profile picture does not accidentally show contempt. So please go do a profile photo audit. Because a lot of people think it's like half happiness or like sarcasm, but actually it's much deeper than that. And two, the moment you see contempt, you pause and you say, is everything okay? Can I answer any questions? What's going on? How are you feeling? Like that is an invitation to go deeper, to connect, to figure out what is going on here. What's the seed of disrespect so we can get rid of it so it doesn't poison our relationship. Mm, This is amazing. Wow. Wow crazy, right? That is just, I mean, that research was like, wow, like one cue could
0: indicate so much. This is so incredible. What about for people who are always feeling like they're getting interrupted in meetings or conversations? What cues could someone start using to change this pattern?
1: Okay. First of all, if this is you, I'm sorry. It's so hard to be interrupted. It is so hard to be overlooked and underestimated. I know because this was me for a very long time. And so I just, I have compassion for you because there's no worse place to be when you're with a group of people and you know that they're not respecting your opinion. So one, I just like want you to have compassion for yourself that you're not crazy. Like you're right. That feels really, really bad. The good news is, is you can rebuild that competence or get back that respect. And I'm going to give you a couple steps to do so. But if at the end of trying and doing these steps, you're still not feeling respected or you're still being interrupted, it means you're with the wrong people, right? Like we can do so much for ourselves, being the most competent version of ourselves, showing up with warmth, being an amazing and incredible connector and conversationalist. But at a certain point, if you're around difficult or toxic people, it's them, not you. So I share that because I, I there is a limit To these cues and of you having to protect yourself. So if you think that there's hope and like there's just was a a rewiring or a mismatch or maybe you made a bad first impression, very practically speaking, is one thing you can do when you start to speak is give people a bookmark for how long you're speaking. So what often can happen is if you lack confidence or you've been interrupted before, you create a bad cycle for yourself. And it sounds like this. So let's say that this used to happen to me. I go into a meeting and I'm like, oh, I don't want my boss to interrupt me okay, so I'm going to, I'm nervous. So my nervousness is coming out and I'm going to try to shove it all in and speak really fast so that I'm not interrupted. (laughs) So as you start speaking fast, you become less comprehensible and people think, oh, she's gotten her point out. I'm just going to take over and say it better. I don't want you to do that. So I want you to go in, assuming that they're not going to interrupt you, right? Like try to bring that, get rid of that fear, that imposter syndrome. And then what you want to do is frame your words very specifically. So I would literally get up and say, So I have three points that I wanna cover. Point number one. So hold up three and then point number one. When you're on number one, I'm gonna literally touch your finger. Point number one, XYZ project is near completion. Point number two is we really need to get XYZ handled. And lastly, the most important is this, 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 and this, and this, and then you're done. That is a very practical way of demo. You can do this on video too, right? Works on video, works in person. Is you're holding your fingers up, it's literally saying, These are my points and it's extremely competent. You only have to do that for a couple of times before people realize, oh, she or he is very organized in her thoughts and I don't have to interrupt her because she actually has a very compact answer. The best part about this tip is if you can't do that, it means maybe you're rambling and you should synthesize your points, right? Right. So it also, it has like a double effect of making you more prepared. So Whenever you're in a brainstorming session, I do this still with my team, even though I am now the boss. I also try to make sure that even if we're throwing out ideas or we're having a brainstorm, is I I bookend my content so people know when I'm done and it's very, very clear.
0: Mm, I love that. I love that. Is it a respect thing though, if people are speaking over the top of you? Is it always a disrespect thing? Like, Because I'm just thinking, sometimes I might do it. I'm thinking about a time where I have done it in the past and I'm just so excited. I just want to like, I just want to like share everything and I just want to like tell how great this thing is. And I have spoken over the top of people. So
1: that wasn't a disrespect thing though. You're so right. So remember that it's also about the person. So yes, we can be interrupted for multiple reasons. They're so excited. They want to pile on, right? They disrespect you. So they're trying to interrupt you. Or three, they have an idea that they just can't wait for you to hear, right? Like there's, like, there's lots of different reasons for it. And so that way, at least the, the structure of like being organized in your thoughts, it can, you can kind of test, is this person doing this because they're, they're mansplaining me or because they disrespect me or like they're just so excited they want to talk to me. And that intention is really important.
0: And you can feel it when someone is so excited and so passionate about something. You're just like, it's endearing. Yes.
1: Yes. And also like with my sisters, so I, I'm the eldest of three girls and my husband, we were in the car together and my husband, we got out of the car and my husband looked at me like he was like sick or something. I was like, are you okay? He was like, are you, do you know what just happened? I was like, what? He's like, the three of you were having a conversation, but you were all speaking at the same time. And <laughs> so with my sisters, we can literally all be talking at the same time and listening to each other at the same time.
0: Yeah. I love like, that. Sorry it's really
1: disrespect you. We're just, we just know each other that well that we can literally just have three conversations at the same time and not pause.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. What about some cues that can make us feel and sound more confident or competent? Like what are some things that we can start to
1: play around with? Okay. So sound is a great one. So when we talk about cues, I, I to make it simple, I've broken it into four channels. We send, we send cues in different channels. Our Our words, the words we use, that's in our emails, our Slack, and in-person on the phone. Our body language, our facial expressions, gestures, posture. Our vocal, so our tone, our volume, our pace, our cadence. And our ornaments, the colors we wear, the objects we wear, what's behind us in our background, the props on our desk. Vocal is the most underutilized channel that we have. It is so powerful. In fact, research has found we decide how confident someone is within the first 200 milliseconds of hearing them speak. Now, this is good and bad news. This is good and bad news. This is great news because you only have to worry about the first second. <laughs> That's it. The bad news is I guarantee if you're preparing for a pitch or a negotiation or a presentation, your first word is probably not what you practice as much as the actual presentation. The problem is, is that first word is like a gateway. If you nail it, if you do it in a really confident way, everyone's listening and much more engaged and intense in everything else you have to say. If you don't nail it and you lose your vocal confidence in that first word, it's really, really hard to get people back. And here's how this happens. We did actually a research study on this where our emotions change the sound of our voice. And so this is pretty well studied in the academic research. And I wanted to know on a practical level, how does it affect our likability? So we brought people into our lab and we had them record different versions of their vocal first impression. Most of the time, your vocal first impression is happening on one word, hello. Like however you answer the phone or however you say hello to someone for the first time or a hello across the room, that is your vocal first impression. It's usually that word. Okay. So we had them record different versions of their hello. Uh, First, a control hello, just how they would normally answer the phone. Then we had them think of something that made them happy and say, hello. So I'll do mine for you. Hello. That's my hello, right? Now I'm going to think of something that makes me happy. And if, if you're willing to do this wherever you are listening, I want you to hear your difference in your own. Think of something that makes you happy. Smile as big as possible and say, hello. Right? Like that sounds really different. Then we had them do a sadness hello. Think of something that made them sad. A fear hello. An anger hello. A power posing hello, which we can talk about in a little bit, where we had them stand really broadly and say hello and then one more control. Okay. What was amazing about these is it was very clear the hellos sounded completely different. Like the same person sounded so different from their happiness hello to their anger hello. It was nuts. Even though that was not the point of the experiment, without even trying, their hellos sounded different. We took all these recordings and we had thousands of people on our website listen to one of the hellos and then rate them on likability. So they heard a hello and they had to say, I like this person a lot. I like this person a little. I don't like this person at all. Very simple. They had no idea who they were listening to. They just took these. And we had thousands and thousands of responses. Very clearly, the happiness hello was rated off the charts in likability. This sounds obvious when I say it, but this is pretty shocking that you smiling and thinking of something happy triples your likability. Just that, just like that piece of it. So I share that because your emotions greatly affect your voice. And not only happiness. So I, I love the idea. Of before you hop on a call or before you go on stage, think of something that makes you happy and go out with that energy and try to speak with that energy because that can actually change the shape of your voice. But second, there is an aspect of this with confidence, and the reason for this is another study. I hope you don't mind that I'm sharing a lot of studies. I love studies. So after my TED Talk experience, so my TED Talk experiment got me a TED Talk, which was very exciting. Although also very nerve-wracking. So I did this study on how to make your TED Talk go viral. And then I had a TED talk and I was like, what if it doesn't go viral? <laughs> thank goodness it did. Thank goodness they got four million views. So thank goodness. But like I was very nervous about it. So I got a TED Talk and then I was like, let's do more. Like we got all these requests, like more research, more research. So the next set of research we did was on Shark Tank. Do you like Dungeons Den, I think it is in, in the UK, Shark Tank in the US. So if you don't know this show, it's a panel of investors here at Entrepreneur, pitch their idea and they can invest. So I love this show, and I've always been curious that there were patterns of the most successful pitches, why some people get an investment in it and some don't. Because in my opinion, I would say 80% of the ideas on Shark Tank are good, like good, solid ideas. Like, most of them are very good ideas. So like, why is it that some crash and burn with a seemingly okay pitch, whereas like others, everyone's throwing their, like they're throwing their money at the person. So my research team, my mate and I, Jose Pina, We sat down and studied 495 Shark Tank pitches. Took eight months of research on this one, looking for patterns, similar to the TED Talks. Why is it that some pitches go really well? And one thing we found in this was a really interesting case study. And I break this down in my book, By the Second, which is Jamie Siminoff is the founder of Ring. You know, Ring, the doorbell company,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: like a video doorbell company. So Ring is a very successful company. It has billions and billions of video doorbells around the world. He, most people don't know, he went on Shark Tank in 2013. He was an early pitch in Shark Tank. And it was horrible. Like, it did not go well at all. Like, he gave this pitch, and it wasn't a bad pitch on the surface, but the sharks were brutal. I mean, they were asking him the hardest questions. Every piece of data, they didn't believe it. And, and he walked out of the tank without a deal. What's crazy about this is just a few months later, he got investments from Shaq, from Richard Branson, and then the company got acquired for a billion dollars by Amazon. Wow. So I re-watched his pitch and I was like, okay, this pitch is not obviously bad, but it went really bad. What the idea is great. This is a billion-dollar idea, literally a billion-dollar idea because Amazon paid a billion dollars for it. Why could he not show it? This is the problem of very smart people. Very, very smart people have incredible ideas, but they don't always know how to share them. And that is exactly what happened to Jamie Siminoff. And it was all vocal cues. I swear I'm coming back to vocal cues. He got into the tank and he gave away all of his vocal power in the very first word he used. The first word he said, he had a little clever experiment where he had them close the shark tank doors and he knocked on the door and he had the sharks want him to ring a doorbell, get it, because he's selling doorbells. So they said, who is it? And he said, it's Jamie. That is called the question inflection. The question inflection is a very known vocal cue. The question inflection is when we go up at the end of our sentence. So instead of stating things, we ask them. People typically mistakenly use the question inflection on their name and on their numbers. And this is the worst thing you can do for perceived competence. When he asked his own name, the sharks heard, it's Jamie. And they immediately thought, why are you using the question inflection on your own name? We doubt your vocal competence. We doubt you're wanting to actually be here. And that question inflection had a ripple effect throughout the entire pitch. There's other cues that he did over and over again to undermine his competence. The reason why the question inflection is so powerful is because research shows that when we hear the question inflection accidentally used on a statement, our brain goes from listening to scrutinizing. It literally changes where we're listening in the brain. So, when the question inflection was used, the sharks went into scrutiny mode. And that's why they were asking these really, really hard questions. And they kept using the question inflection. The problem is, and this happens with a lot of women, is women accidentally use the question inflection because they're trying to be likable. The question inflection does not make you likable. So I see that they, on their voicemail, or they get on meetings, they get on stage and they say, "Uh, good morning, my name is Vanessa. And that is putting the audience in a place where they are scrutinizing you instead of just taking you in. And so my big, big wish for anyone who's listening is one, go listen to your voicemail, make sure you're not asking your name. Two, in your first 10 seconds, state, don't ask, not good morning, good morning, not My name is Vanessa. Instead, my name is Vanessa. Those subtle differences are going to completely change people's first impression of you. And if you are selling something or you are an entrepreneur or you are pitching something, one thing that we've done is we've analyzed sales calls. And typically, there are really good salespeople and there are really bad salespeople who don't close a lot. And we found that the people who don't close a lot ask their number. And what that, what happens is it it flips the other person's brain into thinking, this person telling the truth, so the sale call was like this. You know, we'd love to have your business, we'd love to work with you, and the cost of our service is $5,000. When you ask your number, you are begging people to negotiate with you. You are telling them, I don't really believe this number, and neither should you. And so if you are selling something, if you have a price or a timeline or a boundary, or you're dating someone and they're not respecting you, make sure you are stating, not asking. This is gold.
0: Oh, thank you. It is so good. And I just want to keep going down this path because something that I get asked a lot about is making friends as an adult. Now, I know that it can feel tricky sometimes and plenty of people find it overwhelming or scary. So I'd love to dig into this topic a little bit more First of all, when you are meeting new people, things often start with small talk and lots of those upward inflections. How can we rock at small talk and make us feel less awkward or any other tips or alternatives to small talk altogether? How can we make genuine, deeper, more fulfilling
1: relationships as an adult? Ah, okay. It's so important, this question, it's so important, this question, because we have to have deep, fulfilling friendships as adults, and it's hard work. It was so much easier to make friends when we were younger, because contextually, we were all going through the same thing. We were going through school, or we are going through camp, we were all the same age. Now, we're all going through different things. We're, most of us are very different ages, right? You don't know if you're going to meet exactly the same age person. And so it's very, very hard to make friends as an adult. So if you're struggling with this, you are not alone. We have to work at these adult friendships. So I've studied friendships and there's a study, of course, of course, we're going to talk about a study that really helped me understand friends and being likable and beating small talk. So researchers wanted to know what makes people likable, what makes people have a lot of friends. So they went to the original popular kids in high school. And they studied thousands of high school students across a variety of schools. They wanted to know, why do some kids have the most friends? Why are they the most popular? And they looked at every variable they could think of. GPA, attractiveness, athleticism, humor. Thank goodness none of those things mattered. There were popular kids who were attractive, but that was not the through line across all the schools. There was one, one single predictor of the most popular kids across all the grades in all the schools. And it was the most popular kids had the longest list of people that they liked. What this means is popular kids weren't going around thinking, how can I be more popular? How can I be more impressive? How can I be funnier? How can I be more athletic? All they were thinking all day long was, how can I like this person? How can I like this person? How can I like this person? And that was such an aha moment for me because up until that time, up until I read that study, I put so much pressure on myself when I would meet someone, like, how can I be more impressive? How can I tell a great story so that they like me? That was the complete wrong approach. A better approach was, how can I ask the questions to make me like them more? Which is a very different way of thinking about small talk. And this is what gets you out of small talk. Small talk happens when we ask autopilot questions. Autopilot questions are the questions we've asked and answered a million times before, where we're not even searching for likability. We're just like checking the box. So what happens is we try to make a friend with someone and we're like, how's it going? Good, good. Busy, but good. So what do you do? Where are you from? Okay, well, it's been great talking to you. Like that's the extent of our conversation. It's the same. Like I can script out the answers to that. My, My brain is totally brain dead. So what we have to do is we have to be searching for like. Like we have to create a like radar. You have to ask questions that are literally searching for reasons for you to like them a lot. That's what popular kids are doing. So my challenge for everyone listening, if we can issue a challenge, is let's go on a what do you do diet. No more asking what do you do. No more asking where are you from. And try no more asking how's it going, how are you. Instead, here are the questions I want you to ask. That will create more opportunities for liking. One, casually. What's good? What's been good? What's good today? So even that slight change is still safe, but it breaks autopilot a little bit. And when someone talks about something that's good for them, it usually is giving more reasons for like. That's how I start every single one of my team meetings, all my friends, that's how I start all my all my conversations. It's also not too deep. Like I love a deep connection, but the other mistake people make. Is they go and they're like, I need to build a deep connection. I'm going to ask a really deep icebreaker. What are your biggest dreams? And someone's like, do I know you? Like, we've met twice, right? So you also have to stay safe. So what's good is your casual one. When you're actually in conversation with someone, you're trying to build that relationship. The next question I want you to ask is, working on anything exciting recently? Or what has been the highlight of your week? Or what are your personal passion projects right now? those three questions, we have actually proven produce better conversations. So we did an experiment. We did a little speed networking experiment in our lab. We took 500 speed networkers across three different events, and we assigned them six conversation starters. And then we had them rate the quality of the conversation that they had. What we found was there were certain conversation starters that created amazing connections. Like people were like, I could, this could be my next best friend. Like we're going to go get coffee after this. Like we already exchanged numbers and emails, like literally friend producing and questions that people were like, how quickly can I leave this event? This is the worst. These are horrible. So the bad ones that got the worst ratings were, how are you? And what do you do? Those produced nothing. The best ones were the ones I just read to you. What was the highlight of your day so far? What personal fashion you are you working on? And working on anything exciting recently? Those three questions are also not putting people in an accidental stress situation. If you ask someone, what do you do? And they don't like what they do, or they don't feel defined by what they do, or they are not working, or they are out of work, you have just torn them down by accident. And so the other reason I want to avoid that question is because when you ask, what do you do? You're really asking, what are you worth? And people can choose what they want to be defined by. So asking someone, working on anything exciting recently, you're giving them permission, total permission, to share with you what they feel excited about. That could be what they're working on work-wise. Like if you were to ask me that question, I love what I do. I would tell you about all my experiments. You would never be able to leave, right? Like I would tell you all about that. But if you were to ask someone else that question, they might be able to tell you about their gardening or their kids or their new surfing lessons, right? Like they would be able to tell you about whatever they want to be defined by. And it's so much more positive. It literally helps you skip the small talk. So I, I listed five questions. I don't know if you, if for all my math whizzes, the two, what do you do? How are you? Horrible. The three that I listed, good. there was one in the middle and it almost broke my data. This question was causing all kinds of problems in my spreadsheets. And I was like, what is happening? And when I looked at it, people either gave it a five, like they loved it, it was the best question ever, or they gave it a zero, which wasn't even an option. A zero was like horrible. It was like the worst question ever. And it was. What's your story? What's your story? This question, if you ask this question, please be careful. What's your story? Extroverts love this question. They're like, my story, how much time do you have? Let me tell you, do you want me to start my childhood or the college years? Like, they are so thrilled to verbalize their narrative for you. Introverts hear this question and they're like, can I go to the bathroom? They're like, no. They have a lot of trouble sharing their, their story and figuring out what defines them. So please be careful asking this question. It's a gift for extroverts, but it is also a stress-producing question For introverts,
0: so fascinating. This is so fascinating, and I really hope that everyone wrote those questions down. I'm definitely going to. A question that I often ask is, "What's really exciting you right now?" Oh, I love it. Yes, yes, Yes. that one's a good one. And then with my really, really close girlfriends, we do like a little check-in with one of my best girlfriends, Eva. We do a, "What's your rose and your thorn of the week?" And that's just like little voice messages back and forth, but. There's another person in my life who always asks this question, and I don't like it. Every time I see this person, they say, what's been happening? And I'm like, where do I begin?
1: Yeah, and also like not positive, right? Like it's like they want a chronology of your schedule. Like if I someone else I'd be like, you want to see my task list? It's right here. Yeah. Do you
0: want to see my ClickUp, my Slack, and my calendar? And I always am like, just
1: stuff. Okay. So he, first of all, if someone asks you a question like that, that you don't like full permission to just answer working on anything exciting recently, <laughs> like just like swap it out in your head. Like that's what they're really trying to ask. They're just not doing a very good job of it. I also think that there's something with friends, especially like even newer friends, you can create a norm. Like you just did a, a beautiful thing of like asking Rose and Thorn and, and voice notes back and forth. That's a social norm that you have with your friends of permission to go a little bit deeper and and attend those check-ins as they're going. I really like this with friends and being very verbal about it. You can blame me if you want to listen to this podcast with Melissa and Vanessa and boy, oh boy, they have great advice, which is what do you want to talk about with your friends? What do you wish to talk about? So for example, I have a friend who always, 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 always asks me, what are you learning right now? Always. And what's amazing about this is I didn't even realize it was happening. He always asks this question. And after like four or five times, before I meet with him, I sure as heck make sure I'm learning something (laughs) because I want to make sure that I have a really good answer to that question. And so just by him asking that question, he's made me a learner. Like he's gifted me a growth mindset. So like when I see his coffee on the calendar, I'm like, well, I better get that book downloaded. Like I better start that book. Like I better, you know, I've been saying I'm going to learn how to garden. I better get out there and garden. Because in a way, it's like pushing me in a good way, right? Like it's pushing me in a really positive way. So we have a norm that I do that with him. I also, my friends and I have a norm where I always ask, have any good podcasts to recommend or any good books to recommend because I'm a fiend when it comes to listening to audiobooks and podcasts. So that's a norm that I have with my friends. On my team, so I noticed that on our team calls, this was many, many years ago, we fixed it now. Oh, actually, no, I wasn't, it was right at the beginning of 2020, March and April of 2020, which you know what was happening then, where it was like very negative. Like our calls started with like, murmur, Like it was like very dark. It was a very hard period. And like, even if there was nothing new to talk about, it just was like 10 minutes of like, meh talking. And I was like, okay guys, like we, if there's something negative we want to talk about, we should really dive deep into it, but we shouldn't just make this our default small talk, like accidentally talking about negative stuff. So from that moment on, we start every team meeting with tell me something good. And so we go around as a team and everyone shares something good. It can be something really small, something really big. It should, could be a win. It could be something like personal. It could be something professional. It doesn't matter what it is. And to tell me something good. And my teammates have told me that they always make sure they've done something good before our team call, which is like a great thing. Like I want them to do something good. And they also think about before the team call, instead of like task, 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 email, 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 they're thinking what's good, what's good, what's good, what's good. What's good? which is a way better like mindset for starting a meeting. So please take that. Please borrow that. Do that with your teammates. Do that with your friends. Blame me. Like that's a gift we can give people. These
0: are such great tips for your team and for your personal life. So good. I love it so much. Another thing that I do with my friends, similar to what you do is we say, yeah, show me your podcast app. And so we look at each other's podcast app and I'm like, Okay, what ones are you currently loving? And then I'm like, oh, I haven't listened to that show or that episode. So we do a similar thing
1: to that. Oh, podcast, audible. Like I've I've shown people my audible like lineup, like what I have coming next, like like what audiobooks I have. I love it. I've also shown people like my pocket, like that's like an app for like reading articles. Sometimes I'll show like people who I follow in my pocket. I love like the digital sharing. That's great. Like screenshotting it and sending it to your friends over text. Great. And I love thinking about how do you
0: want your relationships to be with your friends? What do you want to talk about? Do you want to sit and gossip or do you want to grow and expand and share and learn? And there's different friends. Like I have like my mama friends who we like chat about like parenting stuff and like, what are you learning? And I just did this toddler course. And this is what I learned about boundaries and healthy boundaries. Like we're sharing in that way. So, get clear on what you want to learn in your
1: friendships. And also, like, if you're at that point where it's like, you know, your friendship is like only so deep, this kind of thing can like weed out the people that aren't your people. Like, I think that, I don't think, I know, research shows that difficult people, toxic people are actually less stressful than ambivalent people. What they did is they looked at police officers and they found that police officers who had more ambivalent relationships in their office had higher workplace stress, lower workplace satisfaction, worse immune function. Why? If you know you don't like someone, you don't try to make it work with them, right? Like you had the shortest possible conversation. You don't go to lunch with them. You don't wonder about them. It's like, not my person. Cool. Easy. For your brain, that is very easy. For your body, you're like, you don't even produce cortisol. You're like, not my person, Right ambivalent people, and this happens with a lot of friends, unfortunately, this is where you have someone where you're like, do they really like me? Are they supporting me? Was that passive aggressive? Do I feel better when I'm with them or not? So if you see someone's name on your calendar and you're like, ugh, or you're constantly canceling on that person, there's probably a reason for that. Or you leave them and you're like, ugh, I would have rather watched that. That is actually more draining to us energetically and social energy-wise. And so asking these questions is important because if my, my friend were to go to someone and be like, hey, what are you learning right now? And five coffees in a row, they were like, I don't like learning. I'm not learning anything. And that question annoys me. He knows, okay, cool. This is not my person. We should not be having coffee, right? So like, if you're asking these questions, and you're like, I want to talk about learning. I want to talk about podcasts. I want to talk about books. I want to talk about goals. I want to talk about motherhood. And they're not there with you, you can gently ask them to not be in your friendship spot. You don't have many. We're busy. And so I think that those friendship spots should be coveted for the people who are jazzed by the same questions you like.
0: Yes, I love this so much. What about romantic relationships? What cues can help you deepen your connection with your partner and make them feel
1: loved and adored and understood? So the first thing we have to understand in a partnership is that a lot of it is cerebral. Like we think about, is this person the right match for me? Or like, you know, am I connecting with my partner? Or like, are we, you know, soulmates? There's a lot of that. But a lot of it is actually chemical. So when we're actually connected to someone, we have two chemicals, oxytocin and serotonin. Very, very simplified. These things do a lot in our bodies. Very simplified for our purposes. Oxytocin is the chemical of connection. It's that feeling of like, I really like this person. You know, you ever been with someone and you're just like, Hi, this person just gets me. Like, we are like on the same page. That is actually oxytocin, like that feeling. In a really good partnership, you feel that a lot. Not all the time, but you're regularly feeling these bursts of, this is my person. Right, Like, we are on the same page. The other chemical is serotonin. Serotonin, again, very simplified, is the chemical of belonging. This is what makes us feel safe with someone, where you're like, I can be my true self with this person. I feel safe to share my hopes, my wishes, and my dreams. And that is a chemical feeling. And so I think what's really important is we know ways to trigger those chemicals through our cues. So one thing I teach in my class is how do you give someone a DOS cocktail, a dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin cocktail? when you're connecting. Dopamine is a chemical of pleasure or excitement. So connect those three things together and you're having a pleasurable, safe, connected partnership. So, how do we produce those chemicals? The very first way is through touch. The reason why we typically greet with some kind of touch, handshake, cheek kiss, fist bump, hug, is cuz our bodies are trying to produce the chemical that we know we need to connect. Oxytocin is comes more with the more physical touch you have. So, a fist bump produces less oxytocin than a handshake, which produces less oxytocin to oxytocin than a hug. So in a partnership, give yourself a chemical boost by trying to start every interaction with touch. A mistake that I think couples make, especially couples who've been together for a long time, I've been together with my husband for 17 years, right? Like a long, long, long time, is especially as parents, like I'm holding a kid, he's holding a kid, we forget to touch, like him and I forget. Like coming in, giving me a kiss, giving me a hug, when he comes out in the morning, touching my back, touching my hand, holding my hand in the car, holding my, you know, like when he passes me in the kitchen, touching my back, those little moments are aids. I mean, literally chemical aids that are going to help you in all of your interactions. So touch as much as possible, really as much as possible, like if you can, especially like little moments of it. And second, like an eye contact. Eye contact is the second way we produce oxytocin. Again, we forgo this a lot because we're like on our phone. Like we're like talking to our partner about their day. We're like, how was your day? Uh-huh. And we're looking down at our phone. Oh, that's good. And yeah, that's good. And we're not even giving them the eye contact they need. It is so hard. I would even say impossible to have a good conversation if you're not making eye contact. Like it's, it's just not possible. And so focusing on giving eye contact, not only as a sign of respect, but literally a chemical hack. It is a chemical hack to faster connection of making eye contact as much as possible. A will side bar here is there actually is such a thing as too much eye contact. So 100% eye contact is actually considered invasive and territorial. So I wouldn't do 100% eye contact. Like, it would be weird if you were like making dinner and like 100% eye contact with them. Like that would be a little odd. But like frequent looks and frequent glances, please. So, that will help a lot and just like giving that chemical boost. I love this
0: so much. Are there any cues that people sometimes unknowingly start using in their relationship, which can cause distance rather than connection?
1: Fubbing is one of them. So, looking at your phone, reducing eye contact, which we talked about. Not using space correctly is like one that can accidentally happen, especially if you are, this is not really in romantic relationships, but in, if you're on video a lot, like if you are, like I have a virtual team three of my team members are in Austin, Texas, but everyone else is virtual. And so space is a really big issue for making sure that we're connecting over video camera, because that's all we're doing is connecting on video cam. So one accent that people make is they are either too close to their camera or they're too far away from their camera. And that does create this loop of difficult connection in our brains. So research finds there are four space zones and they change a little bit with culture. So, a lot of all the cues I talk about, most of them are universal. There are some cultural differences, though. So, I try to note those. So, the distances are a little bit different, but there are four zones. There's the public zone, five to seven feet away. The social zone, three to five feet away. The personal zone, a foot and a half to three feet away. And the intimate zone, less than 18 inches away or less than a foot and a half away. Why this is important is because if someone is in our intimate zone for an entire video call, our brain is like, whoa, <laughs> like almost like it's too much, right? Like we're like, if, it's like I can't even focus on the word you're saying because you're way too close. So one is you should measure the distance between your nose and your camera, and make sure that it's at least eighteen inches away. Very basically, if it is close to the eighteen inches, you are accidentally triggering people's like uneasiness. If you are more than three feet away, so I'm actually perfectly. Uh, two and a half feet away from my camera, I have a little marker that I stand on. I'm also I stand for all of my calls and videos. Whew, it's, it's 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 good for my endurance, and I'm I'm exactly two feet away. If I was one step further, even if you could hear me, like even if I have my mic on with me, so if I were to be doing my interview like this, it would be physically you'd feel like a lack of connection. I'm standing farther away, so you want to make sure that you're not more than that. The same thing goes in person. So, is your dining room set up where you are sitting? 18 inches to three feet away from your partner, from your children, when you go to a restaurant, can you take the seat next to them and not the seat across from them so you can physically touch and be a little bit more snuggly and close? Space actually trips us up in a lot of accents a way that we don't realize.
0: Mm, I love this so much. You are inspiring me. Oh, yeah. No, truly, I'm going to go and touch my husband and give him eye contact after this. It's so beautiful.
1: He's going to be like, whoa, babe, what's going on?
0: Who did you just interview?
1: <laughs> yeah, just be like, "It's like touch, just to like touch your partner a lot, just like rub up, rub up on them and be like, it's Vanessa. Yeah. Vanessa told me.
0: Totally. I love this so much. And this is really just about deepening our romantic relationships and our friendships and having more intimate connection. It's, it's beautiful. I want to circle back to business owners and, and entrepreneurs. Hey,
1: we can talk about the business behind my business if you want as well. Like that's, always fun as well. (laughs)
0: Yes. I'd love to hear what are some other successful cues that we can start to harness if we are a business owner or an entrepreneur? Like what are some other ones that we can start to play around with? Right.
1: So I think about this a lot in my business. I started my business in 2007. I started doing a YouTube video a week in 2007, which is insane when you think about it. And what what is that? 17 years? What, how, what, what? Yes. I I can't do math. It's a long time. 2007. I can't even calculate. It's been a long time. And we had inflection points in our business. So I started doing YouTube video a week. I also started a blog in 2011. So it took me a while to catch up on the blog side. I saw kind of bursts, uh, inflection points where we had like bursts in traffic or bursts in views. And at first it was kind of random or like viral hits. I couldn't really control it. Over time, though, we've been able to more engineer that virality. And it is the warmth and competence formula. So what we have found is that the really successful influencers, the really influential authors and thought leaders, they are the perfect balance of warmth and competence. Let's take Brene Brown, for example.
0: I was literally
1: about to bring her up. Okay. Oh, see? Same way. So like when I say warmth and competent thought leader, you're like Brene Brown. Totally. Right? Like, I know. Oprah. You know, like that that's who we think of. Okay. So let's take Brene Brown. So if you watch her original TED Talk, which I have watched many, 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 many times. like so we coded that TED Talk. She has the perfect balance of warmth and competence because she walks on stage from the moment she walks on stage. And it's like she's sitting down for a coffee with you. She's not actually doing as much of the TED Talk voice. She's still very, very commanding. But she's the words she's using, using are so casual and conversational that you immediately feel like, is she my friend? Like, are we friends right now? Same thing if you listen to her on podcasts, you listen to her speak she has this balance of, we could be besties. Like, are we besties? Like, do you wonder that when you listen to everybody? I'm like, do we know each other? Like, are we best friends? Versus, and, and, she is so smart. She is so smart. And you're like, dang, this girl is so smart. Lady is so smart. Woman is so smart, right? So she's a great example of her inflection point was putting out this TED Talk in the world that was incredibly helpful, this perfect balance of warmth and competence. And then her entire business, all of her social, all of her books are the perfect blend of warmth and competence. Her books are a formula. Really vulnerable story that makes you cry. Hard-hitting science. Amazing story about her children and her husband. Hard-hitting science. Amazing quote by a beautiful woman at the end of her life. Amazing academic research. Like they are a formula and that balance for us, we love it. If you look at her social media, it is the same way. She'll have a really amazing, inspiring quote with a really powerful picture of her on stage. So in our business, once I started to understand, wow, like, this warmth and competence is not just body language, it's everything. It's every asset that I produce. It's my LinkedIn profile picture, it's my speaking reel, it's my website. So on our website, we have a breakdown of every single warmth cue on a page and every single competence cue on a page. So I can have a picture of me interacting with a fan at a book signing, and then right below it, I have a quote from Entrepreneur Magazine, warmth and competence, right? I can have like a really highly competent review breaking down how action-packed my books are, plus a woman who told me that a review by someone who changed their life. So like you you wanna balance out very, very practically. Like go on your website, go into your social profiles. Every single warm post we post on my Instagram is balanced by a competent post. They are balanced. So if you were to go into my grid and count them up, the last 50, you would see that it's a pretty perfect balance of 25 and 25. Because I wanna A make sure I'm reaching my folks who are a little higher in warmth, but I'm also reaching my folks who are a little higher in competence. I have a very interesting audience of students. I have really, really highly, highly intelligent engineers who are maybe on the spectrum. They don't do well with people, but they're brilliant, brilliant technically, and I just need a little bit of help socially. Then I also have entrepreneurial women who are killing it in business, who are so smart, but they're not getting taken seriously. They're too high and warm. So I have to make sure that I'm hitting both, and that has been our inflection points. So an audit that I would love for you to do, very practically. Go look at your warmth and competence signals on your website. Go look at your warmth and competence signals in your marketing. Go look at your warmth and competence signals in your social profiles. There should be a balance. Mhm.
0: I love that. So many people listening to this are online business owners or influencers, and a lot of us have to show up on social media for our business. What are three social cues or communication habits that will help us to show up and really connect more with our audience?
1: I'm gonna give a practical answer to this question. I don't know if you were searching for a less practical answer, but that's where my brain went, which is practically speaking, we have to get people to consume our content in a content deluge, where like people are waterboarded by content all day long. We have thousands of emails, thousands of posts. So how do you make your content stand out? I really do think it's certain cues. So we did a little test where we looked at our thumbnails on YouTube we found that when I showed any hand gesture in a in a thumbnail, we had more clicks and more views. Didn't even matter what the video was about. Like I, I'm, by the way, I'm assuming that you're putting out amazing content. Right? Like the first answer is put out amazing, incredible, life changing content. Right? Like that is the only way to stand out. I'm assuming that if you're listening to this, you're already there. You already have great ideas. You're already putting out amazing stuff. The question is, how do you get the right people to listen to it? How do you get them to? to how do you get yours to stand out in this? In this, you know, big sea of mediocre content. So one is we are very attracted to cues. So when I in my thumbnails do any hand gesture, and actually the more specific the better. So not just like a wave, but like when I like hold up like a like a little like a gesture of some kind. People always click the video and watch it because I think it shows a specificity in the video. It shows competence along with like my smile or my open face. So that's the first thing. Second is I would use gaze cues really carefully. So We did a couple of tests on our website. We also did a test with Brian Dean. Brian Dean runs a great website on SEO. And he's a friend of mine. And I went to his website one day for some SEO tips because we're very big in SEO on our blog. And I noticed his header on his website was him looking at the camera, so making eye contact, with his arms crossed. And it was like, opt in for amazing tips on SEO next to him. And I messaged him and I was like, Brian, your photo is killing you. It is horrible for opt-ins. Your body language cues are telling people that you're closed. And research is very clear on this. When we see someone with crossed arms in a profile picture, in a video, in person, on a video call, we see them as more closed-minded, and that makes us more closed-minded with them. People are much less likely to opt into your email if you are closed. So I was like, please, can we do a split test? And he's like, oh, yeah. So, we did a test, the exact same header, the same background, the same shirt, the same everything, except one was him with his arms open and one was his original one. He had a 5.4% bigger opt in rate with the open body language. 5.4% doesn't sound like a lot. That was 237,000 more emails. Okay. So, I share this because these cues have massive impact. They are small, but they really affect we're making these first impressions so fast you as a business owner you as an online influencer people are deciding if they're going to follow you in a split second in a split second so you want to make sure your headers your instagram photos everything i mean everything the whole list is following all these different cues specifically for for getting people to see your content as as, with this because it's already good you want them to see it Mm -hmm, absolutely
0: Everybody has had that experience of writing an email or a text message and having their intent get lost in translation and the message getting misconstrued along the way. Is there a way to use cues in written or digital communication? How do we do that? Because when it comes to Slack, I'm just direct to the point. I'm like, hey, babe, where's the email? Like I kind of just keep it really short and sweet and simple. But I have realized that there are some people that don't like that in my team. They like a bit more of like, hey, beautiful, how was your day today? By the way, where's that email? But I'm also a mom and I, I'm just trying to get my work done. So talk to me about this.
1: Yes. So there's a lot of cues that come across in our emails and our Slack. So I have an entire chapter on this in cues because I think, and it's our longest chapter because we cannot put effort into every email. We cannot put time and effort energy into every Slack. So when it counts, we better do it right. Because if you have a couple of good emails and a couple of good Slacks, you get a halo effect, right? Like it can translate when you're having a bad day or a rough day or you're really rushed. So that if you've invested in a written communication or verbal communication with a couple of them, when you have to send the babe, where's that email? They're going to remember the positive effect from when you invested. The issue here is investing in the emails that really matter. And we can do a balance of warmth and confidence. One of the things I have you do in the book, which I'll have you do here, is to do an email audit. So I would open up your email sent folder and pull up five messages that you spent a little bit of time on. Some messages that like kind of mattered, right? Like there was something about it that like those messages mattered to you. Print out those emails. I want you to count every warm word in that email. So warm words are words I have a glossary, but warm words are words that like create the warm and fuzzies. So like connect, best, both, happy, collaborate, team. They're words that make you feel warmth, friendliness, trust, collaboration. They're words that make you want to connect. Then I want you to count the number of competent words. Competent words make you want to get it done. Efficient, productive, streamline, get through, power through, lead, right? Those are all very competent words. Emojis and exclamation points count as warm words. So every emoji is one warm word and every exclamation point is one warm word, okay? Numbers, percents, data, graphs, and charts are competent words, okay? Count these up and do an audit. You should have a balance of both in these emails. So if you are way high in warmth, well, ton of emojis, a ton of warmth words, people are not gonna take your emails as seriously and they're probably gonna be slower in replying. If you have way too much confidence, that enough warmth, people feel suspicious. People feel unheard. People feel that you're a bad collaborator. People feel that you're cold. So it's critical to have a balance of both of these words, both these types of words. I love that. I do a lot of voice messages because I feel like
0: I can really get my warmth and competence across a lot better than in an email. And I just find it's a lot quicker, more efficient, and easier. So I will do a lot of voice messages. I'll do a lot of voice recordings on Instagram or things like that. I would much prefer that over email.
1: It's so much better because you're adding a channel, right? Like you're literally adding, you're adding, if there's four channels, you're using two of them, words and vocal. And so it's so much easier to get your warmth across because we're usually warm in our voice, right? We can make an email sound so much warmer with the same verbal content. And so that's, yes, yes, more voice memos. More, more voice Although I have a friend who says that voice memos are violence because she feels that it takes too much of her time. I'm like, but I love you. I just want to send you a five-minute voice memo telling you how much I love
0: you. You can speed them up these days. It's fine. Do it while you're out on a walk or something. Okay. For everyone listening who wants to start communicating more effectively and with a lot more love and warmth, we've mentioned so many things. Is there one other thing that you would suggest they start focusing on? It would
1: be very good, very practical to assess your warmth and competence. Because you might think that you're high in warmth, but actually people are perceiving you as you're higher in competence. So I have a free quiz. You can take it as many times as you want. It's scienceofpeople.com/slash charisma. I recommend you take the quiz. It will assess your warmth and competence. But bonus points, if you can send it to someone to take as you and screenshot the results. Because we can only get so far with self assessments one thing that I found with this work is you might perceive yourself one way, but your team or your partner or your colleagues perceive a different way. And that it is critical to make sure that they align. So the one thing I would say to work on is make sure you have an accurate self-assessment. I love that. I'm definitely
0: going to do that quiz and we'll link to it in the show notes for everyone to go and check it out. Okay. Let's pretend you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every high school around the world. Besides your books. Let's presume they are in there.
1: What is one book you would choose? The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. Oh, I have not read that. Pretty great. It's a relatively new book and
0: it's amazing. I love it. I'll link to that in the show notes as well as your incredible books too. Okay, I have three rapid fires for you. Are you ready?
1: All right, I'm ready.
0: What is one thing that we can do today for our health?
1: Stop spending time with ambivalent or toxic people. They're contagious hmm Absolutely. What is one thing that we can do for more wealth in our life? Show more warmth and competence, but actually be more warm and be more competent. I love that.
0: And what is one thing that we can do for more love in our life?
1: Stop asking autopilot questions, get them out of your language, and ask questions that are actually searching for oxytocin and dopamine and serotonin.
0: This has been so incredible. I want to talk to you for another five hours, but I know you have to go. You've got your babes. You've got to get back to my little. <laughs> this has been incredible. You are helping. You are serving so many people. Thank you. So I'd love to know how can I and the listeners give back
1: and serve you? Oh my goodness. Well, I'm so grateful for you listening this whole time and t- and saying yes to some of these. So the best way that you can help me is to share these aha moments with others. So if there's a tip on here that like blew your mind or you were like, I'm going to ask these questions, like tell people this amazing lady, Vanessa, talk to me about this. And here's why I'm doing it. Sharing aha moments is the way that we help others. It's the way we solidify our learnings. And also it's it's the best gold of referral for me. So I, I'm very grateful.
0: Oh, absolutely. And we'll link to all of your amazingness in the show notes that people can go and check out. Vanessa, this has been so insightful and so incredibly inspiring for me. I am going to re-listen to this. I'm also going to send it to my husband and my team. Hi team. Hi husband. Yeah. My team do sales calls and things like that. So I want to send this to them. So thank you so much for being here. And I also want to send it to my friends because I want to go deeper with my friendships.
1: Yeah, and you could if you're listening to this, watch this with your team, watch it with your friends, watch it with your partner, and then use it as a conversation her. Like watch it together, listen to it together. Absolutely,
0: yes, and go deeper in your relationships. Thank you for being here, Han. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. I have a growth mindset, and I am a student and a learner for life. So mm. this episode really excites me because. There are so many things that I can take away and implement straight away into my life. I'm so excited to start using some of the things that she has spoken about in my communication with my friends, with Nick, with any business colleagues. I am so excited for this. And I'm excited for you guys too. I want you to have deep, rich, fulfilling, meaningful relationships with the people in your life. So, take on board everything that we've spoken about, implement it, and let me know how you go. And if you loved this conversation as much as I did, please subscribe to the show and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts, because this means that I can keep getting on these incredibly inspiring guests for you. And it also means that all of my episodes will just pop up in your feed so that you don't have to go searching for a new episode. And that means you will never miss one. So do that now. If you haven't already, please do that. I'd be so grateful. And now jump on over to Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me what you got from this episode. I absolutely love connecting with you and I love hearing from you. It is one of my favorite things. So please jump on over there. Now, before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest and the happiest version of yourself and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there's someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please share it with them right now. I definitely will be sending this to Nick. I will be sending it to my girlfriends. I will be sending it to my team. I want everyone in my life to listen to this episode. It is such an important episode. So you can take a screenshot. You can share it on your social media. You can email it to them. You can text it to them. Do whatever you've got to do to get this in their ears. And until next time. Don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating,
1: and wealthy isn't a dirty word.